0: The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. My name is Margot Landman. I am Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China Podcast is Jennifer Lin, author of Shanghai Faithful, Betrayal and Forgiveness in a Chinese Christian Family. Jennifer is a former reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer, where she served as the paper's New York financial correspondent, Washington foreign affairs reporter, and Asia bureau chief based in China. Jennifer, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today.
1: Hello, Margo, and thanks for the invitation. What was the genesis of the book? How did you come to write it? Margo, my father uh, left China in 1949 and he's part of the great diaspora of Chinese people who left uh, in advance of of, uh, 49. And so in 1979, my father was able to take myself and two of my siblings back to China to meet the family he left behind. And I begin the book uh, with that trip because the first hours of the trip were all sweetness and smiles, there was very good feelings and I went to bed thinking, oh, this is going to be a wonderful two-week trip for my father, a reunion for him. And I'll never forget the first morning because my father came down the steps. We were staying in the family home in Shanghai. And the look on his face, it was one of shock and despair and sadness, and I had never seen him like that. And he said, my God, it's so depressing. And what happened was he had spent the night, speaking to an uncle of his, who was filling him in on what had happened to the family since his departure. And it was really that trip that was the catalyst. Um, My father called my book project my obsession, um, and really I did become obsessed with trying to find out what happened to this family and why. I'm a reporter. I've spent my entire career as a reporter, never as an editor, always just a writer, because it's more fun. And so, really, this has been something I've been chipping away at since 1979. And it was that morning, my first morning in China, that really was the catalyst. That's why I did this. And
0: how did you do it? How did you unearth the material, especially for the earlier generations who weren't around to share with you?
1: You know, it's, it's really interesting, Margo, because my father's a doctor, and when we came home, he kind of took what he knew, he put it in a box, and he kind of put it away, and he didn't dwell on it. And I think it was because I was a reporter, or becoming a reporter, that I just, like, started digging. And how I did it was, you know, the way any reporter approaches a big project or an investigative piece. I started by taking oral histories, sitting my father down the moment we came home and, and saying to him, "Dad." Tell me about your life, because I really don't know about your childhood. I don't know why you left. Tell me about your mother, your father, your sister, your brother. And I really started building the circle from there and interviewing everyone around me. My cousins, who were more my generation, uh, you know, I went back to China many times, and, and they really opened up to me, and they wanted to tell their stories. So my book covers 150 years of Chinese history through one family. And for the last 75 years, I could really build that around oral histories. For the first 75 years of the story, though, that's a bit harder to do. So um, I had to rely on uh, uh, other sources. Uh, I did a lot of digging in archives. I found a lot of uh, writings of my grandfather in archives, both in the U.S., England, and in China. Um, I, I relied on missionaries to tell me what life was like in Fujian province where my family is from and in Shanghai. So my story is about a Chinese family so it's a Chinese perspective on the evolution of Christianity in China. However, I did have to rely on kind of the the diaries, the the archives of the missionaries to really understand what was happening in China for those the first half of the book which would be from like 1870 until, you know, the 1930s, where I had to rely on on kind of archival material. You said just now two
0: things that might be contradictory. One was that your father put everything in a box and put it aside, and the other was you sat him down and asked him all these questions. Was he willing
1: to talk to you? Because some Chinese parents are not. He humored me the first time and sat down and talked to me. He was puzzled by why I kept going back to him again and again and again. I uh, really tried in earnest to finish reporting and researching the book, I would say in like the last 15 years. And I would I would sit my father down to go over things that we had already discussed and he would be like, I already told you about that, you know, like why are we doing this again? And it was really hard on my relatives, so, you know, uh, many of my relatives were still living in China. And so, this uncle of mine was the only one who told my father what had happened to the family during that first trip. When I went back to China in 1986 uh, for the first time, you know, my cousin, who's closest to me in age, she, in that, you know, six year period, had become fluent, of course, in English. Was that Terry? Terry, yes. And my Chinese is pitiful. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, She wanted to tell me Uh what had happened to her. She was part of the lost generation. And I found that the younger people were anxious to talk. The older people would not open up until, like, at least 10, 15 years after the Cultural Revolution. And they were not convinced that the bad times couldn't return. So it wasn't easy. Um, And, you know, being a reporter, you know, it's like you have to pick out a scab. and, And it was hard for them. And I tried to be patient, I tried to be understanding, but at the same time, I wanted to know. So I wouldn't let my dad off the hook. And so, you know, I would just keep going back and back and back. And the same thing with my Aunt Martha and my Uncle Tim and my Uncle Jim. You know, I could not have done this book without their cooperation, so I am indebted to them. Mm -hmm. Oh, is Aunt Martha in Hong Kong? No, my Aunt Martha immigrated to Australia. Australia. Her husband's family had gone to Australia before 49, so that's where she ended up, and my cousin Terry. And then the other half of the family immigrated to the United States, Chicago, L.A., San Jose.
0: Your grandfather, who plays a central role in the book doesn't come across as particularly sympathetic especially before 49 he seemed very harsh toward his wife toward his children toward himself or was he just a typical chinese
1: man of that time he was very ambitious and he was very proud and those were his downfalls and the reason i know that is he wrote that in a letter He, um, from 1953, which is when my parents married, met. My mother is an Italian-American nurse from Camden, New Jersey, and she met my father on the ward at at Temple Hospital in Philadelphia, and they married. And from that moment on, my grandfather wrote to us every single month. He was fluent in English. He had been schooled by missionaries since the age of 10 and had spent two years at the University of Pennsylvania and seminary in Philadelphia. So he spoke flawless English. And I deconstructed all of those letters, which my mother saved. Mm-hmm. So I had letters going back from 1953. And just in one letter, maybe he was in a melancholy mood or something. But he, he admitted that pride was his downfalling in life. Um, after 1949, my, my grandfather, and this came through his writings. And he was a prolific writer when it came to religious topics. So I knew kind of what he was thinking and I, I was able to, to to uncover the fact that he was an extremely patriotic Chinese man. And he really believed that the church, if it was going to survive, needed to be a Chinese church mm-hmm. and more Chinese needed to be in charge and, and working as clerics. And he really pushed that. Um, And after 1949, because of various reasons that I describe in the book, uh, you know, his family background, he was really shunted aside. And he was in the prime of his life at a time when he should have been in a leadership role in the church. And really, it was impossible. So, you know, he's 65 years old and basically babysitting his, his grandchildren. And so there was a lot of time to reflect. And so, you know, my grandfather was very prideful and extremely
0: ambitious. He comes across as much more sympathetic when
1: the going gets tough. Interesting too that their marriage became much stronger during those hard times. And I know this from my, my relatives, from my cousins who would have been witnessing it. Life wasn't easy for the two of them. Neither of them wanted to get married. It was an arranged marriage. And exacerbating things was in 1932 they moved to Shanghai. And at the time, my grandfather became an assistant pastor of St. Peter's Church in Shanghai, which was a very important church. It was considered the Red Church. It was very sympathetic to the communist cause. And my grandmother played the, the organ. So by moving to Shanghai, though, she moved across the street from her brother-in-law, Watchman Nate, who was an independent religious leader, had his own assembly hall in, in Shanghai. And my, my grandmother was best friends with his wife, Charity. So she started going to his church because she was curious and she liked her brother, she liked her sister-in-law. And she found that she also liked his way of practicing Christianity more than her husband's church. So she stopped going to this Anglican church. And my grandfather was livid and said, how can you do this? You're the wife of the pastor. What will people say? And she said, I don't care. And so it caused a real schism in their marriage. Um, and again, I know this because they would fight about it in front of their children. And the children remember great rows about whose church they would go to. So my, uh, my grandmother would take her daughter with her to the assembly hall of the little flock in Watchman knee, And the boys would go with their father to the Anglican church on Sundays. Do
0: you think that explains in part why your your father and uncle left and your aunt stayed behind?
1: No, I don't. I think it was more that um, my grandfather had been educated in the West, and he wanted his children to get a Western education too. So he offered it to all of them, there were four of them. The two who left were my father and my uncle, and they were both doctors, mm-hmm. so it was easy for them to leave. My Aunt Martha didn't. She was she was married. She was a doctor, too. She was a doctor also, and she was married. Uh, she was not interested in leaving. And my Uncle Tim was not a doctor, and it would have been harder for him to find work in China. So it's more for educational reasons that they were encouraged to, to leave.
0: You mentioned earlier on in our conversation that... It took a while for some of the relatives to open up with you. What? How did you gain their trust, and did any of them want to be anonymous?
1: So this reporting for this book really spanned, and I'm not saying this just to be dramatic, but really 40 years. So in the beginning, the older relatives were extremely reticent, and really didn't want to talk to me and didn't want anyone else talking to me uh, because, you know, the family had suffered so much during the Cultural Revolution and because they weren't convinced that the bad times couldn't return. The, the relatives who were my age, though, um, were much uh, more uh, willing to talk and even anxious to talk. In particular, one of my cousins, Terry, had had a very difficult life Uh, And she's part of the lost generation. So when I went back to China, the first trip was 79. I went back in 1986. Terry by then had become fluent in English and was very eager to to tell me her story. So 1986, I was sent by the newspaper to do reporting about the economic change in China. And after reporting all day, I would come back to the house, the family house. And every night, Terry, Terry and I would sit down and talk. And I, you know, would take out my tape recorder and we would talk into the night. And this went on for a week. And then I just, you know, I went back to China many times. I lived there too for four years. So she and I basically had a conversation that began and never ended. Hmm. So the younger people were, were would open up more easily. The older people just took time. And as a reporter, you learn patience and perseverance. And I just didn't go away much as they had hoped I would stop asking them the same questions over and over and over again. I just persisted. And your cousins seem to have landed on their feet.
0: Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what ended up happening to them?
1: In particular, my cousin Terry has a very interesting life story. She was 16 When she went to the countryside, she heeded the call of mal, and she went to northeastern China. She worked for seven years as a barefoot doctor. She was delivering babies at the age of 16. And when she came back to Shanghai, the only work she could find was like in a a little neighborhood factory making wind-up toys. Sounded awful. So in 1979, when I met her for the first time, she was working as a janitor in her mother's hospital. So long story short, you know, again, Terry was part of that lost generation. There was a drive to make up for lost time. So Terry, you know, worked her way up from hospital janitor to hospital bookkeeper. Then she worked at the Shanghai Sheraton. Then she immigrated to Australia, studied accounting. And at a time when she was just the type of person that Western businesses needed, because she understood China and now she understood Western accounting. So she very easily got a job in China and was working in China when I was there in 1996 and, and probably earning about twice what I was making as a reporter. So she did very well for herself. She parlayed her, you know, her experience into a, a career. My cousin Kai Kai, you know, he was just you know, a, a kid when the Cultural Revolution happened. His whole schooling had been derailed, but Kai Kai knew how to work with his hands and he knew how to, to make clothing so long story short he ended up in los angeles and you know was working in a chinese restaurant repairing rattan furniture going to to you know um swap meets on weekends and selling t-shirts and then eventually building his own company and selling it and you know and becoming you know living the american dream of retiring at an early age and traveling the world so probably also making a lot more money than you yeah i mean (laughs) that generation the people who are today 60 and above had so much drive Mm -hmm. to make up for the lost time and they all kind of rebuilt their lives but they did it outside of china yeah we have unfortunately run out of time
0: but i want to ask you one more question do you think that the book will be published in chinese and in China or Taiwan or Hong Kong?
1: I would love for it to be published in Chinese, uh, and if anyone is willing to, I, I welcome the opportunity. The, the book is a family history. It is a family history, and what makes my family unique is their experience with Christianity. It is not proselytizing. It is history. And so I hope that it's made available for Chinese readers because I think they would they might... be very interested to know this chapter of Chinese history.
0: I certainly didn't mean to suggest that it was proselytizing. It was more that it, it paints a very, very harsh picture of China in the 50s, 60s, 70s including but not limited to the persecution of Christians. So I would be very surprised if it were readily available on the mainland anytime soon.
1: You're probably right.
0: All right. Unfortunately, we have to bring this to a close. Thank you very much for speaking with me today.
1: Thank you, Margot, for the opportunity. I enjoyed it.